welcome to the CMP Horror Podcast, a new podcast where the CMP tribe will discuss some of the most iconic and frightening horror films of all time. Join us as we offer our unique take on some of your favorite horror films and let us know what you think. I know I'm human. Some of you are still human. This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to, but it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's one. You guys gonna listen to Gary? He can beat one of those things! 1982's The Thing, directed by John Carpenter and starring the great Kurt Russell. So a brief synopsis of The Thing. A research team in Antarctica is hunted down by a shape-shifting alien that can assume the appearance of its victims. The Thing at the time was both a critical and financial failure. It grossed around $19 million and its cost to be made was $15 million. The timing of The Thing is probably one of the main reasons that it was a failure. Now, critics did pan it. They said it was gross, obscene, and they also said it made no sense whatsoever without any character development. But one of the other reasons is, and the biggest reason, is that it came out two weeks after a major alien film came out. And this alien was very sweet. It was soft. It was family friendly. It could babysit. It could do parlor tricks. And more importantly, it wanted to go home. We're talking about the movie E.T., which was one of the highest grossing movies of all time. And of course, was directed by Steven Spielberg. Now, the second reason that people think that the thing failed was because this alien in comparison really had no purpose or we didn't know what the purpose was. It wanted to infect as many people as possible. And sometimes you didn't even know if you were living with it. That appeared to resemble a newly termed illness called AIDS. And it scared a lot of audiences away. As you know, we go to the movies to escape, not to deal with reality. So those are two of the reasons that it probably felt, in addition to the reviews that it received. So I picked the thing for several reasons. One is because it is a well-filmed horror film. The cinematography, the score the editing, they all set you up for this really intense atmosphere that really puts you at unease from the start. And the action starts right off. You know, we don't have a whole lot of character development. We're just going right into the action. And the biggest thing is the practical effects. Like this movie was made over 30 years ago and the practical effects still hold up to now. Every year, Around October, you will see the thing being shown or broadcast on many different channels or networks, which kind of proves that it has slowly become a true classic. So with that, let's go into a little bit of discussion with our panel about the thing. Thanks for that, John. I really thought that you gave a great intro and context. I'm familiar with the thing. I saw it maybe a few years ago, and I watched it recently (laughs) preparing for this podcast. And yeah, I can appreciate it. <laughs> I can appreciate the film, but I didn't have a strong reaction to it. But yeah, the, the practical effects are amazing. Amazing practical effects. What else do y'all think about it? 
Yeah, so this is L. Michael Gibson, and for me, The Thing is one of my favorite films. It's based on a novella by John Campbell called Who Goes There? I saw the original 1951 film, and I mean, I, I thought it was amazing. The cinematography by Dean Cundley. Cundy has done works like Back to the Future, Death Becomes Her, Jurassic Park. He uses a lot of reds and blues and purples. And one of the things that I, I noticed when I watched it, it was like visually looked a lot like you can tell the period, right? Gremlins has a similar kind of look. E.T. has a similar kind of look. Like, you know that 80s look. I mean, Stranger Things kind of tries to replicate that in the visual style. I love the cam work. He was also like early pioneer of steady cam work and movies like Halloween. And you see that here. I thought the score was amazing, which is interesting because it has... Ennio Morricone listed as the person who created the score, but actually John Carpenter did a lot of the score himself. So you hear like echoes of the Halloween score, which Carpenter also did. Yeah, I'm a fan. I'm a fan. You know, Michael, it's really funny that you mentioned the score because one of the things that I felt like when I saw the name of the the composer pop up on the screen, I was like, this is a very John Carpenter sounding score to be scored by someone else. Thank you for making that note because I didn't do the research, but I was surprised that it wasn't a John Carpenter. He wasn't listed as the, the composer. Watching this movie is always fun for me. The Thing is one of my favorite horror films. I love the way you kind of, from the start of the film, you don't know what you're in for. And even though I've seen The Thing probably 20 times, it it doesn't get old to me. So I sat and watched it with my father again in, in preparation for this podcast. And one of the things I love about it is the way the story draws you in. And I think that they build the, you know, something really eerie and really weird is going to happen, but you You just don't know what and you don't know when. And I think the thing does that horror movie thing that we love really well. Let me say this. The camera work is also extremely good, too. Like there's some scenes where the dog is kind of checking out each room to see who's in there and to see what's going on. And then, you know, you see one room where there is someone sitting in there in the shadows and the dog decides to gently walk into that room and the camera kind of lingers You know, it doesn't really, the editing doesn't stop right there. You kind of see it linger for just a moment. And I think it's those shots that kind of create the tension of the movie. It's it's pretty amazing. The funny thing about the dog is it's actually a wolf. It's a real wolf. And it wasn't a wolf that was familiar or used to being on sets. So they weren't sure whether or not the wolf would ever attack. And so the, mm-hmm. and like, and they had a moments where if it was super tense, it would just kind of stop and stare, which they captured on film. But those moments were also moments where the cast was like also tense and <laughs> not sure whether or not the wolf was going to attack them. Mm-hmm. So that was the crazy thing about that. Yeah, my criteria for a horror movie is, did it scare me? And I just didn't find the world building that extraordinary. I think the first, so I guess there was like a prequel that came out several years later, and I thought that provided some context. But I mean, there was some suspense, obviously, and the practical effects were interesting. But in terms of John Carpenter films, I mean, obviously, Halloween reigns supreme. I mean, that actually completely succeeded in scaring me. But in terms of the thing, I thought... I don't know, like I just didn't have those moments of, and I watched it at night. You know, I have a, you know, I watch horror movies at night. That's really important. But I just wasn't that, I just didn't find it. It, could, it didn't even really keep my attention that much, quite frankly. Oh, wow. 
That's interesting you said that. So I'm the person that saw the thing. This is Anthony Antoine back in 1982 when it came out. And I likely haven't seen it since. And so I watched it in preparation for this podcast. And the criteria of whether or not the film scared me, it wasn't as scary as it was a little gory. It did keep my attention. I think it's interesting that this kind of is celebrated now as like one of the best science fiction films ever made. And to watch it in 2020, it's just interesting. I don't know if I would celebrate it that much, but I enjoyed it enough and I watched it at night and I turned on all my lights before I went to bed. So I guess it moved me a little bit in 2020, but I haven't seen it in like 38 years or something. What do y'all think is the best scene in the movie? Like, what's your favorite scene just from a purely story perspective? Ooh, ooh, can I jump in on that one? Anthony, again, for me, is when they're sitting there and the wire and the blood and the intensity of like knowing whose blood is going to react. And then I think, um, I don't know the character's name. There's a reaction from the blood and the guy's like, let me out of here. Like they're tied up in these chairs and tied next to each other. I thought that scene was like my favorite scene, the tension there. I think my favorite scene, and I have a couple in this movie, so I'm picking this one, is when they put the wolf in the kennel with the other dogs and how the wolf goes in and sits down in the center and then all things go crazy after that. I think that scene really helped to set up the rest of the film for me. So that's my favorite. And this is Johnny. This is John. I also have another favorite. I think the one where I can't remember the character's name. I think it's Vance. He ends up having a heart attack, so they think. And and then they put him on the table to start resuscitating him. And we know what happens when they start using electric shock to revise him. Someone's hands get caught up in the mouth or something. And I think that scene is pretty amazing, too. Yeah, I have to echo. So I would say that's probably my favorite scene. Robin Bolton did the special effects, the practical effects. He was only 22 at the time. It was his like second or third film. And I just want to know how they did it because it seemed very seamless. And then with the head kind of pulling away from the body and turning into a spider and <laughs> kind of walking away, like that whole set of events, that whole sequence of events for me was pretty incredible. I also, one of the things that I, what struck me that I didn't remember the first two or three times I'd seen it was Albert Whitlock's paintings for the background. Like, I didn't remember the alien ship. I didn't remember that whole sequence of them even going to see the alien ship. And, you know, when I went and did the research and found out that that was a painting that they were stepping into, I thought that was, like, incredible because I was completely believed. I think I think we're kind of spoiled today by CGI and that a lot of those effects that they did back then, they used old school movie magic. And I think that's one of the reasons why the thing is still special to me. And I feel like it holds up better than a lot of CGI movies is that they didn't have that the benefit of computer technology and they were able to pull a lot of that stuff off. I mean, a lot of those animals were sculptures. A lot of the monsters were sculptures or animation or stop, stop uh, motion animation. It was crazy how many amazing effects that movie pulled off that were innovative at this time. And now we're kind of like, oh, it's ho-hum. <laughs> but at right. the time, nobody else was doing those kinds of effects at that level. Now, Michael, I know how he did the hand thing. They actually found an actor who was armless 
And, yeah, exactly. I saw that. Yeah, yeah, so that's how they did that that particular effect. And that's amazing. And then it was jello. Like the, the part that was the fake arms were made out of jello. Uh, yes. With like plastic veins and bones inside. Like that was incredible. Yeah. Wow. And, and Michael, you know, one of the things that I didn't remember about the thing, I did not, for whatever reason, I don't know why the opening sequence, the very opening where the credits are going, why I didn't remember the explosion of the spaceship. Mm. I literally just didn't recall, like, everything that came after that, I've had a pretty good memory of. But for whatever reason, I was watching the opening sequence and, like, I didn't remember that part. Like, I'm not sure why, but I just didn't remember things I didn't remember about the thing. That was one of them, that o- the opening sequence of the spaceship crashing. Now, let me say this. Out of everything that they did, the, the practical effects were amazing. I think they could have did a little better with that spaceship. That spaceship was horrible. <laughs> well, they didn't really go into, you know, I wish they had, well, I got, I'm actually glad they didn't, you know, go into the spaceship because I think that would have taken away some of the, you know, would have gone more in the alien direction versus the direction that it went in. Now, I think another reason that I do like the thing is because they didn't use this old standard trope that they use with all horror films. Like if you're a person of color, you're the first one to go. So we have at least we have two black men who are in this movie and they're lasting way until the very end of the movie. I, too, love that about the film, John. And I think when I look at horror movies, I mean, like you said, that trope of like black people not surviving. And it was a young Keith David, a young T.K. Carter. I didn't even remember them being in the movie. Of course, I know their movies since. But now going back and watching it so many years later, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. And like you said, and they survived like pretty much through the movie. I mean, one of them makes it through to the end. Now, there's a caveat to that. Now, they were some stereotypes with both of their characters. So (laughs) Keith Davis, you had him and he was the black man you can't trust with the gun because he's emotional. I'm doing yeah. air quotes so you can't see it. And then you have T.K. Carter who's rolling around on skates. And, of course, you know, he's just a little bit sassy. And, you know, he's, he's defiant. Right. <laughs> he's defiant and he's playing Stevie Wonder and he's cooking everybody's food. So, you know, it's like, uh, okay. But then what did we expect from 1982? <laughs> That's true. That's true. It definitely seems like the consensus is that I think most of us, or I guess all of us, like the movie. I guess I'm the contrarian. <laughs> I respect it. It just, I don't know. One of the things that's interesting, and I know we're wrapping up soon on the thing, is that they did shoot an alternative ending in which Keith David did not make it. And I mean, John Carpenter always knew that he was going he wanted the original ending that he had, but they were concerned because it was such a downbeat ending where essentially neither one of those guys were going to make it. And so they shot it just in case the studio would want it, where, what is his name? The Kurt Russell character is rescued and his blood is tested to prove that he's fine. And it was kind of like a happy ending. No, no, no. Right, but that right, but they decided to stick with the ending that we had. And even though, yeah, we get to, we do get to see Keith David make it to the end, we also know that neither one of those guys are gonna live. Right. <laughs> and 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 that was a pretty downbeat ending for a horror movie or even a sci-fi film in 1982. Yeah, it was the start of some great movie making in the future because I do believe that is the perfect ending. Because if either one of them is infected with the thing, then we know for a fact that. It 
it will survive to live the next day and cause havoc. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, I think this was a great discussion. Does anyone have any final comments about the thing? I think it's interesting that, John, you called out the parallel in 1982 to HIV. And in 1982, there were probably quite a few of us, not necessarily me, I was 12 or 13, but some people probably did think that HIV was more like the thing living inside of them. And then they hear that parallel now in 2020, HIV, while it has been something that was impactful to us in the community, and it just wasn't that, it's not that frightening thing that we thought it was for some of us surviving. So I just think that's interesting. I think cyclically, though, there's also something about the endurance of this tale of not being able to trust your fellow man and not trusting what may be inside of them. You know, because when the original 1951 film came out, the paranoia was around communism and Red Scare and not knowing who was and was not corroborating with Russia. Then the original story was in like in the 1930s, which had its own form of paranoia. So I think that one reasons that this film has been made now three times <laughs> is because that theme of paranoia and not knowing who to trust is an enduring one. Definitely. And I hear that there's going to be a 2020 version, or at least there's talks of a new version coming. I think we need to let it go. You know, just like they keep making different versions of all of the 80s film. I think we're seeing that a resurgence in that now. So did y'all see yeah. the prequel? I did. I did. I did as well. I actually liked the prequel. I think I liked it a little better for some reason. I don't know. Maybe it needed a final girl. I don't know. I just was like, I need something. I think the prequel was good. I think people were just kind of annoyed with the CGI in the, in the prequel. I think that, I mean, because you can see a few spots where it's like, oh, okay, this is a little shaky. On the ancient aliens angle, you know, these films that kind of hints at that. So the History Channel has these ongoing specials on ancient aliens, the theory that aliens landed on Earth tens of thousands of years ago. And so many of the, the human marvels were really introduced by alien species that landed. And, you know, I think the thing kind of hints at that a little bit. So it's just, I think that might be part of the enduring legacy of it. And you see this kind of play out in some of the, the aliens movies, especially with, I think, Prometheus and such. But yeah, I did enjoy the prequel. It was well made and it was seamless as well. Like, you know, the stuff that we saw Kurt Russell and them discover, you actually see them put it in the prequel. So you have those explanations. Do we have any more comments about the thing? So we're going to give it a yay? I give it a yay. Definite yay. Definite yay. <laughs> Charles? <laughs> I, I suspect this is going to be an ongoing theme with Charles. <laughs> uh, well, Charles is undecided. Why are y'all, see, that's why they, John Carpenter tried to speak on that in a thing, this notion of conformity and assimilation. <laughs> about independent thinking and it's about supporting iconic life. No, I mean, I, no, I think that I do believe that you should watch the thing. I recommend it because it is a part of the horror canon. And, you know, just on the level of being a classic film, but perhaps if I viewed it more as a science fiction movie and less as a horror movie, I probably could, you know, I'm, I'm very orthodox about my horror. So, but we'll talk about that some more later. But yeah, I did like it. So y'all should see it. Okay, great. Well, I thank my panel. I think that this was a good overview of what the thing is. And hopefully we have persuaded some people to go see it and our new generation to experience it the way we have. Are you a vampire? I need blood. <laughs>
How old are you? Really? Twelve. But I've been twelve for a very long time. Hey everybody, we're going to talk about Let Me In, the 2010 film remake or reimagining based on the 2008 Let the Right One In. Let Me In was directed by Matt Reeves, who also directed Cloverfield. The cinematography was by Greg Frazier, who also did the cinematography for Bright Star. The score was by Michael Giacchino. This film is interesting because I thought of the film as being shorter than the original, but it's actually two minutes longer at 116 minutes. The budget for it was $20 million. The box office worldwide for it was $27 million. It debuted at number eight its weekend and was ultimately one of the lowest grossing films released by a major studio offering a wide release that year at number five. The Swedish original also kind of, you know, even though it's internationally acclaimed off of a $4.5 million budget, only made about $11 million internationally. That was directed by Tomas Alfredson. It's based on a novel, a best-selling novel internationally by John Lindquist, who did the screenplay for Let the Right One In. And as some of the critique for Let Me In was that it borrowed so heavily from that screenplay that Matt Reeves probably should have said that the screenplay was also by John Lindquist. The synopsis. So it's set in the 1980s in a small town, New Mexico, called Los Alamos. On its face is the love story of a gender non-conforming female presenting boy made into a vampire too young at age 12 and therefore needs a procurer and handler to help her feed and manage daytime affairs. And the love affair between her and a bullied boy on the road to serial killing and psychopathy based on his origin story. It's also the story of a transition of power from a pedophile in love with the vampire child to one being groomed to be his successor as the pedophile grows too old and feeble to successfully procure for the vampire child. In it, this vampire story serves as a metaphor for the pain of adolescence. The true horror of the film is the hell that kids go through in school through bullying. The story is many things. It has many levels. It's a tragedy. It's a love story. It's a vampire story. And among the details revealed in both the novel and Swedish film is that Eli, or in this one, Abby, is a boy who was named Elias, who was castrated when he was turned into a vampire some 200 years ago. However, she dresses in female clothing and is perceived by outsiders as a young girl. And in the novel, Hakan, also renamed Thomas, also offers to go out one last time under the condition that he gets to spend the night with Ellie after she gets the blood, but with the caveat that he may only touch Ellie. So those are some things that the original and hinted at and that the novel talked through, but that this one only kind of subtly suggested but didn't go all the way with. So that is the kind of the synopsis for Let Me In. The reception. So even though this was not a box office success, this remake was certified 88% certified fresh by Rotten Tomatoes. It made the top 10 list for best films of the year for 2010. It was one of the best reviewed films for that year. It received 79 out of 100 for Metacritic. CNN and MSN Entertainment named it one of the top best films of 2010. And for the most part, it was universally acclaimed. Again, the critique that was present was that it was too much like the original. And so some people, some critics felt like it was redundant. The original author disagreed in a love letter to the film, saying that he'd been blessed and fortunate to have not one but two films translating his novel that he loved and thought were beautifully made. 
Chloe Moretz, who played the lead Abby, went on to win a slew of critics' awards. Cody was also nominated, who played the boy, was nominated for several. And the film received Best Horror Film of the Year at the Saturn Awards and a Top Independent Film Award by the National Board of Review. Similarly to The Thing, Let Me In has gone on to be much more financially successful on DVD and Blu-ray. The DVDs have already sold like over a half a million copies and over $6.2 million in additional revenue on top of its box office. And that's not counting Blu-ray. So that is Let Me In. I chose it because I thought it was one of the most beautifully shot films I'd ever seen. Visually, it's so poetic. It's lyrical. And these are not things one typically says about a horror film. I thought it did a lot of what Stephen King attempted to do with it, both the novel and the film, which is to show just how endangered children are and how dangerous children can be to each other. As somebody who was bullied as a kid, I don't always felt like adults appreciated the sense that you could die by your bully's hand, that, uh, you know, you were hyper aware that in their attempt to just terrorize you, that you could become a casualty of an accident, not intended or intended. I think the film does a really good job of showing and displaying that brutality. And I just thought it was like (laughs) everything you want to see visually in a film. The camera loves the actors' faces, the actors deliver. That little boy, he's like a male Mia Farrow. I saw Losing to Rosemary's Baby a lot in kind of the camera work. I can't say enough about this film. I just think it's beautiful. And, And I'm a fan of the original, but I actually like the remake better so i'm open the floor up to discussion and thoughts so this is johnny and you know one of the things that i forgot about with this movie was how effective the kills were and how incredibly scary they were so the transition of abby from you know abby until the vampire was legitimately terrifying and i forgot completely about that until re-watching this film for this podcast but I'm going to also echo one of the things I loved about this is I felt like at points I was watching kind of those earlier scenes in The Exorcist in some of the cinematography I loved the way this film was shot I felt like it was beautiful to watch and I felt like when they leaned into the kills The reason why they were so terrifying is because you were watching them enveloped in this kind of beautiful love story. Yeah, I I mean, I agree. I think that there is a a feralness to Chloe's performance. I watched the kind of making of after I watched the film. And, you know, there were moments that Chloe's mother couldn't be in the room because she was just like shocked seeing what her daughter could do. as this character. I also think this is one of the few times where I didn't notice the CGI in a horror movie, and the movie does have CGI effects in it. There are actually over 200 special effects in this film, but you wouldn't know it. You know, a lot of it feels very organic. I feel the same way. It does feel very organic. I think Chloe's performance, of course, roots the film. I think also her interaction with Richard Jenkins. Richard Jenkins is amazing. As her handler, I I love the chemistry that they have together. Now, so for me, some people say it's a love story. But on the other hand, I was looking at it through another eye. I thought it was maybe a recruitment story. Like the young kid was the fresh athlete and she's trying to recruit him for her team. I didn't know whether everything she was doing was authentic. I didn't know if she was truly, you know, in love with him. I know he loved her, but it's the same with Richard Jenkins because she was giving him the business when he could no longer give her blood. So I I thought that was interesting. You could see it in both eyes that way. 
I'm going to begin my comments with saying that Chloe's from Atlanta. So on, from that perspective, <laughs> it's Charles, by the way. The Atlanta perspective, I definitely root for her. I support her. I think this movie succeeded as a love story, as a sort of indie film. I think it succeeded in some of the visual elements that Michael detailed. It had horror elements, but I, I didn't read it as a horror movie. I didn't read it as a vampire movie. I mean, yeah, there were some kills and stuff like that, but I was like, oh, this is a pretty movie. And I actually like that. And it's so interesting because, you know, the film that I wanted to bring into this podcast was going to be The Sweet Blood of Christ, which is also a vampire movie that, you know, or rather it's a, a movie that uses vampirism as a sort of metaphor. But it wasn't hardcore horror enough, so I didn't know if it would succeed. But yeah, yeah, I thought this film was, was pretty to watch. I thought the performances were breathtaking. It was traumatic in some ways. The bullying was really hard to watch. But I mean, I think the scariest part of the movie is when he hit the boy with the, what was it? A hockey stick. That, you know, <laughs> does not a horror film make. Okay, so the elements of horror, I didn't think that there was a lot of great world building. I mean, of course, it was a very moody film. It created, you know, tone. But it like in terms of the world building, like, I don't think we got a lot of backstory. I think we might have got some in terms of just the kinds of things that go into like a great vampire movie. I just didn't feel like it succeeded in that way. And, no, and I didn't think the, I didn't think the kills were, I mean, yeah, because it was kind of, um, it felt feral is a good word. But I wasn't, I don't know, like, I wasn't that interested Charles, I was just going to say, you're not alone on this one. And so you're, you're not you're not hanging out there by yourself. I've never seen this film. Charles, have you ever seen this film? I have not. This is the first time. So this was my first time seeing it, too. So I don't know if that means that I'm not as much of a horror fan as I thought I was. But maybe because it's a romantic horror, as it's been described. And I just think it was so it was beautiful to watch the performances, the actors. But I think it was like trying to do too much. So the love story part of it, the vampires part of it. It, the pedophilia, the bullying. It was just doing too much for me for me to include it as a horror film. And the kills were great. And so then I was pulled back in. So at every kill, I'm like, okay, yeah, that scared me or that got me, which is what I need a horror film to do. And I still turned on my light after I watched it. And so the kill parts did move me the way a horror film might move me. But as an overall horror film, I wasn't like crazy about it. I wasn't like cheering it on. I'm going to defend my film. Yeah. <laughs> I feel a way I'm going to defend my film. So when I think of horror, you know, one horror is a pretty expansive kind of catch-all for lots of different types of horrific events, right? And so, you know, Stephen King's best books are kind of the horror that human beings do to each other. Yeah, there might be a monster or there might be some special power that's darkly used, but it's really, at the end of the day, about the horror that we commit against each other. And I feel like the film explores that even, like, there are, for me hold your breath moments. Richard Jenkins in the back of the car as a serial killer from a first person perspective shot, imagining what it would be like to have somebody in the car, in the backseat behind you, ready to pounce, ready to murder you. I thought that was scary as hell. I thought the, the steady cam shot of the cop going to Chloe's door is one of the most heart-stopping, suspenseful moments in cinema. I always think about it as a moment that I would like to see other people kind of study as how do you build suspense. All he did was walk down the hallway, you know, and, but that walking down that hallway with the cinematography and the score built so much tension and so much suspense. And then when you get that kill release and then you get the door closed as a resolution emotionally, I mean, I just thought that just knocked that out the park. I actually didn't know or... The pedophilia was so suggested and subtle in this one versus kind of the novel and the original film that that's like another layer of horror too. Like 
Yeah, they were both boys together. Richard Jenkins, when he was a boy, Abby, they were both children. But then he wasn't a child anymore. And obviously was still engaging in some kind of intimacy with this child's body. I agree with you, John Malone, that I think that this story can completely be read as a groomer's story. Like how children are groomed. Because while Abby presents as 12, Abby's hundreds of years old. That's a grown-ass person in a child's body grooming Mm. a child to be a killer. Grooming a child to procure for her. And we see the end result in Richard Jenkins. We see the future for him, which is equally horrifying that that this little boy who's been bullied, that we're rooting for, that the end of his life is going to look like Richard Jenkins' life is terrifying. So, you know, I guess it depends on what you think of as horror. As horror is just slasher films and girls with big boobs running in the woods and falling and getting chopped up, then no, this doesn't work. But if horror is the different ways in which horror... And I, and I also, I, I will just say it in closing, it won the Saturn Award for Best Horror Film of the Year. Somebody believed it was a good horror film. <laughs> I, I'm happy that they made a horror film for film critics. And I thought, <laughs> I thought it was a little pretentious. I mean, no one's arguing that it's not a beautiful film. I just, it was a little pretentious. It was a little, it just, I fine. I mean, again, I'm, I'm not saying it was a bad movie. I'm not saying it was an awful movie. I'm just saying. In terms of, if you compare it against other vampire movies, I'm sorry. I just, I, I wouldn't put it. But if you want to compare it to romantic comedies or whatever. Oh, romantic comedy? Oh my God. Oh. I'm about to fight you with my Vaseline. <laughs> so, so the part for me that I was actually rooting for, and I think Charles alluded to it, is when the girl tells him to fight back tells the character to fight back. And so I was waiting for that. So I was like, oh yeah, I hope he gets to fight back because the bullying part was hard to watch. And my favorite part is when she was like, I'll help you. And he was like, you're just a girl. And she's like, I'm stronger than you think. And I love that because I was like, oh yeah, there's going to be a time where she's going to be able to jump in and get them. And so that's the part that I was rooting for more so than being horrified or feeling like I was watching a horror film. Like I was engaged in it in a different way than I normally am for horror movies. Can I just say one more thing? The scariest parts for me were the bullying part. So, I mean, another one's like, oh, the, I thought the kills were predictable. Like when he was in the backseat of that car, I was like, shall y'all see? Y'all know. I mean, you know, you saw that happen to me. I was like, this predictable. But when they, when they, when those boys sneaked into that swimming pool and they shut them doors and he was still in the swimming pool, I was like, now that scared me. When he was in the swimming pool and the boys snuck in and they like uh, set the fire to distract the coach or whatever. And I was like, oh, this is going to be awful. <laughs> Again, predictable, but it's like, this is scary. Now, Charles, it's interesting that you referenced that moment. This is one of the few horror movies. Well, I mean, it happens, but those ch- children were viciously murdered in a horror film. And that was, it's just not something you always see. And that particular scene from the tension, Charles, you're absolutely right, of that boy being in that pool to that older brother dunking him and knowing that he would kill him to Abby then kind of, Abby saving the day was... That was one of my favorite scenes in this entire movie. The pool scene, you've never seen that ever. I mean, that's also one of the things that I look at if I'm looking for a film. Have I seen this shot? Is this? Is there some freshness? Are there original scenes I've never seen before in film? You have never seen that pool perspective murder in that way ever. That was one of the best shots of a murder in all of them bodies, all them parts. <laughs> like, it was, like, that was horror. That was horror. 
I did appreciate that scene more so because, you know, he said, you're just a girl and she's like, I'm stronger than you think. And she shows up. And that was the part that I was waiting for. I wanted that to happen. And yeah, while it's hard to see kids killed, but they had been bullying the whole movie. So it was like time for them to get their due. I think y'all right on, on all of you are right. I actually saw the original and I remember when they said they were going to remake it. I was like, this is just too soon. I think it, that might be part of the reason why the movie didn't do as well as it as it could have. Because I remember seeing the foreign film. It was here at one of our independent film houses. And I was like, God, this is just too soon for them to be doing a remake. But I will also say, after seeing it, I thought, okay, this was remade very well. I think me and Michael talked about it, that they cut out some of the fat and they added components that really worked in the film. They took out everything that didn't work in the foreign film and they put in things that really did work. I will say this too. I don't know anybody who don't look in the backseat of their car (laughs) before they get in anymore. So I mean, you had to have a little suspension of disbelief with that, but I do believe it was a good movie. I will say upon reviewing it, I really wasn't as impressed as the first time I saw it. But I do think it's a good movie. And the score is amazing. That score sets up attention for everything. Yeah, I think part of why you're able to get away with the serial killer in the backseat was that it was set in the 80s. And you did have women who were, in fact, were murdered by serial killers sitting, you know, who were waiting for them in the backseat of the car at gas stations. That was like one of the serial killers of the 70s and 80s signatures. So I feel like they borrowed from that the the movie actually you know even though it didn't do as well at the box office given how much it costs and, you know and to john's point it was made just literally two years after the original it's done well the novel itself came out in 2004 it's went on to be a stage play in norway in 2011 and 2012 it then went on to be a stage play in the uk in 2013 and became an international tour that did well that year it was a television pilot that TNT did that ultimately didn't end up getting picked up in 2017. And it was a four-issue limited series prequel comic by Dark Horse Comics in 2010 that was not approved by the author. And for those who might be interested in finding out what happened to the boy and the girl after the train, the author of the original novel wrote an epilogue, a short story called Let the Old Dreams Die. So you can see what happens to those two characters afterwards. So the story has had a life that far exceeds the original story. And I suspect it's going to, you know, I'm sure somebody else will try to remake it, you know, hopefully 20 years from now and not <laughs> not quite so soon. Well, that's good. I guess the consensus is that we all liked the film, although for different reasons, but that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that anytime a film... I mean, like if if nobody cared and they had no, you know, that we're apathetic about it. I think that that would be different. But there are people who have strong opinions about the film, and you know, there's lots of questions that it asks: Is this a relationship based on empathy, or is this a grooming story based on something much darker? and more sinister. I mean, and also we already know from before he even met the vampire, that little boy was well on his way to being somebody's mass murderer. So (laughs) she picked the right one to let in. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that we are wrapped up with that. If, are there any other thoughts or opinions about let me in and would you recommend it to somebody else? I guess ultimately. Michael, I'll say you definitely defended this film and you made me want to watch it again hearing you defend it. So I would definitely recommend it. Yeah, I would also absolutely recommend if folks like vampire films, I think this is definitely one you have to check out. So yes, thumbs up for me. This is John. I do believe that it is worth one watching. 
It is a beautifully shot film and pretentious, as one of our panelists says, but I, I do. I think it's a, a great movie. And I think you should also see the foreign version as well. I think both of them are really good. I absolutely recommend this film. I think that with that, that's Let Me In. <laughs>